word comes from us today from Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them, dazzling in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Has risen. risen Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God, loving and merciful Father, once again we praise you on this day, on this glorious day when we get to celebrate and reflect upon the resurrection of our Lord our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we walk through this passage and delve into this text, Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself, that you would glorify your Son in our mind's eye to an even greater extent. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us more of your truth, and through it all, we pray that you would fortify our faith and that you would increase our love and devotion to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Was the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ necessary? In other words, could God have saved people through some other means? That has been argued before, that God could have chosen to save people through an animal. He could have accepted the sacrifices in the Old Testament had he chosen to do so. He could have simply chosen to forgive, bring all people into heaven. Why did a person have to die. Why not accept an animal? Why a human? And why did that human have to be divine? 
Why not just any human being? If Jesus had to die, then why the resurrection? And why was a sacrifice needed at all? These questions matter, and they're important. They're worth discussing. They're worth wrestling with because the idea that God, the creator of the universe, the idea that God became man in the second person of the Godhead, lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, died on the cross, was buried, and then on the third day rose from the dead as the basis for Christianity is radically unique. It is radically unique. Every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world has this one thing in common. They were all started by somebody who claimed that they were visited by God or that somehow they received some special knowledge and then they share that information with their friends and family and their friends and family said to themselves, well, that makes sense. Let's go with that. Christ is the only one in history who when he was asked, what proof do you offer? How do we know that you are who you claim to be? He said, destroy this body, destroy this temple, and in three days I will bring it back to life. In fact, the resurrection of Christ is the single most important event in the life of Christ. The resurrection of Christ, in fact, is the single most important event in all of redemptive history. We talk about the cross of Christ. It's the cross that brings us atonement. It's the cross that forgives us of our sins. And that is true. And it was necessary. We talk about his perfect life of obedience through which we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But if there is no resurrection, everything about Christ's life, and in fact the entire Old Testament, is a farce. It's all meaningless. The entire Bible is meaningless without the resurrection of Christ. So that's what we have an opportunity to look at this morning. And in our text, we read in verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So this would be Sunday. The first day of the week would be Sunday. We know that the Jewish Sabbath was on a Saturday, which the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday night. That's how they counted their days, from sunset to sunset. When the sun went down, that was the end of one day and the beginning of the next. And so the Sabbath begins on Friday at sunset, and technically the Sabbath ends on Saturday at sunset. 
So why wait until Sunday morning? Well, why do things in the dark? So they could have gone there in the dark, but they decided we don't want to be there in the dark of night. And so they wait until the sun comes up. And so they are there on the first day of the week, taking the spices that they had prepared. Uh, These were the ceremonial spices and the oils that would have been placed upon the body as it was adequately uh, prepared. Because remember the story that they did not have time to go through properly the, the entire burial ceremony that they would normally do for a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, because they had to hastily take him down at the, off the cross. They had to hastily... They put some spices on him. We know that from the Gospel of John. They had some spices. They put some on him... They hastily wrap him, though. They get him into the tomb. They have got to get the stone rolled in front of the opening before the sun goes down. Because once the sun goes down, the Sabbath begins and all work ceases. And they would have been serious about that. If the stone was still rolled back, the sun went down, we got to leave it. So they were in a hurry to get Christ down. And so these women want to finish what they began. So they get the spices and they are making their way to the tomb on early Sunday morning in order to properly do the ceremonial cleansing and apply the spices to his body. And to properly wrap him, they may not have wrapped him with as much care as they would have liked. So they want to make sure and do justice to the body of their Lord Jesus Christ. What is amazing is that God's perfect providence is seen in this event. Because understand that these ladies likely would have been upset at the fact that they were not able to properly prepare Jesus' body on Friday night. Not only would have been upsetting the whole scene that took place, but now to make matters worse, they have to hastily bring him down, throw some spices on, wrap him up, get him into the tomb. They were not able to take the time that ordinarily they would have wanted to take, especially with someone as important as Christ. Had the Passover happened earlier in the week, they would have had that time. Because the Passover does move around. It's based on the lunar calendar. Of course, the Jewish New Year begins after the uh, Vernal Equinox in the spring. And so, for example, this year, the Passover was this past Wednesday. It moves through the calendar. It moves through the week. So had the Passover taken place, Christ, we know, had to be crucified on the Passover That was prophesied in the Old Testament. The whole Passover feast in the Old Testament was all a typological foreshadowing of what Christ would do for his people. But had the Passover taken place earlier in the week, and had they had the time to properly prepare him and to do the ceremonial cleansing and to wrap him with care and to get him into the tomb, there would have been no reason for them to be there on the third day. But you see, God had prophesied in the Old Testament that on the third day, he would rise. 
In fact, Christ told that to his disciples on several occasions, that the Son of Man must be handed, given into the hands of sinners, and he will be killed, but on the third day he will rise. Somebody had to be there on the third day in order to verify that, yes, in fact, he rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. So God providentially makes it so that the Passover comes right before the Sabbath so that they have to be there on Sunday to witness the empty tomb and know that Christ, in fact, rose from the grave. You know, I think there's a great lesson for all of us here that even even in the smallest inconveniences and setbacks in life, it's all a part of God's plan. The things that can, the little things that can frustrate us, they can disappoint us, they can just set us off track. God is in control of even the finest details. So whereas the women just may have been frustrated at the fact that we just couldn't bury him the way we should have, that's fine. We'll go back on Sunday morning to finish what we started. And lo and behold, the tomb is empty. Now, granted, had the Passover happened earlier in the week, Jesus still would have rose from the dead on day three, and he would have appeared to them in bodily form, but there would have been no way to verify that it was on the third day, and that needed to be verified by eyewitnesses. Folks sometimes struggle as well, and I just want to take a moment to explain this with Jesus rising in three days, because in the way that we think, you know, he's crucified on Friday, he's supposed to rise in three days, that's Saturday, Sunday, well, shouldn't that be Monday? They counted days simply the way, differently than the way we do today. It's just a different way of thinking. We tend to think in terms of 24-hour days. I'll see you in three days. Okay, well, tomorrow is the end of one day, two days, three days from now. Jesus talked about rising on the third day. And in the Jewish mind, today is day one. This is day one. There is no zero days. Day one, tomorrow is day two, the following day is day three. And that's why the Bible actually words it that way. You see that at the end of verse seven, and be crucified and on the third day rise, on the third day. Friday is day one, Saturday is day two, and Sunday is day three. We do that today, in fact, just depends on what we're counting. But we do count some things by starting with number one, right? For example, we count centuries that way. It confuses kids. I know I taught histories. confuses some adults even. To say that Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the year 1517. A lot of kids go, how is that the 16th century? I don't get it. 15, shouldn't that be the 15th century? Because the first 100 years is the first century. The second 100 years is the second century. So A.D. 150 is the second century. A.D. 250 is the third century. We start counting with the first century. One, two, three, so on and so forth. That's the way they counted everything in the Jewish mind. Day one, day two, 
Day three is Sunday. And so they're there early on Sunday. And we read in verse two, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, this would have been a massive stone. It's the reason that we see in Mark that as the ladies are approaching the tomb, as they're walking there, they have a conversation with one another saying, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Because we know from an archaeological discovery, there was a a nearly intact first century tomb discovered in the town of Hezbon, Jordan in the year 1971. And uh, you can see pictures of it. And the stone, a solid piece of rock, was four feet in diameter, four feet in diameter, and 14 inches thick. This was a heavy stone that would have taken some strength to roll away. And so they are surprised that when they get there, the stone's been rolled away. We're told in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Behold, two angels suddenly appear to them. Now, if you're familiar with your gospel stories, you know that there are some discrepancies regarding this uh, minor detail. For example, Matthew cites that there is one angel sitting on the stone when the women approach. Mark says that there is one angel sitting in the tomb when the angels approach. John says that there are two angels sitting inside the tomb when the women approach. What do we do with these minor differences? Simply this, it adds more credibility to the accounts. It really does. That's not just a simple answer to get out of some sort of theological quandary. Legal experts recognize that. That, For example, when there's a car accident and a scene, the police officer shows up and he wants to write a report and he's trying to figure out what happened. He can get four witnesses, separate them, ask them what happened, and they're not going to get all of the facts right. One of them is going to say, that car ran the red light and hit that other one. The other one will say, no, no, it was that one. It was going through a green light. It was the other one that ran the red light. Well, who was driving the car? Well, the man was driving. The woman was in the passenger seat. Another witness might say, no, the woman was driving, I'm pretty sure, and the man was in the passenger seat. And a third one might say, I only saw one person in the car. I don't know what they're talking about. None of that means that any of them are lying, and it doesn't mean the event didn't take place. They all agree on the major events. It adds credibility to the story. In other words, don't miss the forest for the sake of the trees. Here is what all four Gospels agree on. Number one, the stone was rolled away when the ladies arrived. All four Gospels. The stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty when the ladies arrived. That's number two, the tomb was empty. Number three, angels were present. That's clear. Whether there was one, two, where they were sitting, angels were present. 
Number four, Jesus was not there. And number five, it was the third day. They all agree on the major events of their account. And so when the women see these angels, we're told in verse 5 that as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground and the men said to them, this is simply a sign of respect and a little fear. The women are not worshiping them. But what do you do when you see angels? They're messengers of God. Show some respect. They don't simply stand and speak to them like they're ordinary people. They bow. And to some degree, they are fearful. I think most of us would be. I've never seen an angel. The way that they are described in the Bible, not as chubby little creatures with wings. They're quite frightening. Isaiah says that they had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And the angel says to them, or the men say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a mildly sarcastic statement. In other words, you silly ladies, why would you expect to find Jesus here in a cemetery? This is the place for the dead. Why are you here looking for Christ? Did he not tell you that he would rise from the grave? Don't you remember what he said to you while he was still alive? Because Jesus had told his followers on numerous occasions, particularly if you go back and you look at all of the times in all of the Gospels, because they happen in different points, but in the Gospel of Luke, On at least two former occasions, Jesus told them very clearly that he would rise. Luke chapter 9, for example, verse 21 and 22. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. What's he referring to? He's referring to Peter's confession. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah. Verse 21, and Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, listen, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says this again in Luke chapter 18 to them, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon the Gentiles, the Romans. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. So some might say that these women simply lacked faith. Jesus told you he would rise from the dead. On the third day, he made it clear, why are you here looking for him? I don't think that the women lacked faith. I think more likely that the idea of someone raising themselves back to life was so 
beyond their comprehension that they simply did not understand what these words meant. When Jesus said that to them, the Son of Man will be killed, but on the third day will rise. What does that mean? On the third day will rise. I mean, I know what he's saying, but I don't understand what he means. In fact, we're told that in Luke chapter 18, the passage that I just read. Verse 34 says, And they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Because people don't rise from the dead. Unless someone else brings them back to life, we know that that happened in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus did that with Lazarus. But who is going to bring Jesus back to life? How is he going to raise himself back to life? And so here we see the angels reminding these ladies of what Jesus told them and his disciples several times before. And then they say to the ladies, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. They say to them the exact same thing that Jesus has already said to them on several occasions before. But what is interesting is that Jesus says, and these angels remind them, that there are three things that must happen. Remember how he told you while in Galilee that the Son of Man must There are three things that must occur to the Son of Man. These three things had to happen. Number one, Jesus must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. In other words, he couldn't just be killed. Jesus couldn't just live a perfect life of obedience to the law and then die of a heart attack or be struck by lightning or fall off a cliff. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, sacrifices that were offered for sin had to be offered by the sinner. Because the sacrifice was a representative of the sinner. You couldn't send a delegate to offer a sacrifice for you. Oops, I committed a sin, if it was an unintentional sin. I committed an unintentional sin. Son, I want you to get a goat and travel to the temple and offer a sacrifice on my behalf for the sin that I've committed. No, Dad, the law says you have to do that. You have to present the sacrifice As a replacement for you, let this animal die in my place. Now, granted, the priest would be the one that would take the animal from the sinner and would be the one who would slaughter the animal for the sinner. But Christ is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice. And it is the sinners who present the sacrifice to Christ himself that he might die in the place of sinners. 
Secondly, Jesus said, and the angels remind these ladies, that Jesus must be crucified. The Old Testament made clear that the only remedy for sin is death. Because God is the great law giver. You know, when Congress writes laws, when our state legislature writes laws, they include penalties for violating these laws. And we can sit and debate all we want why that penalty? Why five years in prison for this crime and not ten or two? Why five? Why just a citation for a certain traffic violation of $500? Why not $200? Why not $1,000? Because they wrote the law. They're the lawgiver. Whatever rationale went inside their minds as they were debating and writing these laws is irrelevant to the rest of us. It is what it is because they are the lawgiver. And they determined by their authority that is given to them by the people to determine what the penalty must be that fits the crime. By God's authority that is invested in himself and by himself, because he is the creator of all things, it is God, the lawgiver, who determines the adequate penalty for crimes committed against the creator. And God says the sin is death in the Old Testament. Death of an animal for unintentional sins. You can look there, Leviticus chapter 4, read the entire chapter. It cites all of these various unintentional sins. You didn't mean to do just sort of an oops. Certain animals that you can present the temple that will be sacrificed on your behalf. However, Leviticus chapter 20 makes very clear that it is the death of the sinner for intentional sins. Someone who chooses intentionally with premeditation to sin against God, God says that person must die. And in the case of unintentional manslaughter, where you kill somebody, but you didn't mean to, Numbers 35 says, you are secluded to one of the cities of refuge. You are confined to a city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And the death of the high priest is what sets you free so that you may regain your freedom. The perfect lamb of God dies on the cross for our unintended sins. Jesus was fully human and thus takes our place for our intentional sins. If a man sins intentionally against God, then a man must die. Only an animal can die for unintentional sins. Christ the lamb does that for us. Christ the man dies in our place for our intentional sins against God. And Christ is the great high priest whose death sets us free, whose death gives us our freedom. 
Jesus was a human and had to die for sins because humans are who brought sin into the world. It wasn't an animal that brought sin into the world. It was a human who brought sin into the world. Therefore, it's simply a matter of justice. We understand justice. The penalty has to fit the crime. If I smash into your brand new car and feel really bad about it, I cannot offer you my $25 Timex watch as a replacement. Have my watch. We'll call it even. It doesn't work that way. We get that. You either need to buy me a new car or pay for the repairs. That's justice. Humans brought sin into the world. Therefore, God says a human must pay for sins. But Jesus also had to be fully God. Because only an infinite sacrifice can satisfy an infinite debt that is owed against an infinite God. Jesus had to be fully God. See, because when we go into debt against God, which is what our sins cause us to do, they bring us into debt against God. We owe God because of our sins. That creates an enormous problem for us because God is infinite. Because you see, if I owe you a debt, say $1,000 that I borrowed from you, I have one of three options to take care of that debt, even if I struggle to figure out where I'm going to get the money. I could pay you a dollar a day, and in a 1,000 days, I would pay off my debt. But how long would it take us to pay an infinite debt against an infinite God? Or I could avoid you in the hopes that someday you might forget about it. If I avoid you long enough, at some point you might just forget that I owed you any money. And if I avoid you even longer, well, someday you're going to die. And then I don't have to pay you. The problem is that God never forgets. And God will never die. When we sin against God, we owe an infinite debt against an infinite creator. Only an infinite sacrifice can satisfy that debt. The third thing that had to happen, we're told, is that Jesus must rise on the third day. He had to rise on the third day. Peter talks about that in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. There in his famous speech at Pentecost is messaged to the Israelites. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, God raised him up by loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
It was not possible. Why is that? Two reasons. Peter offers us one. He says, for David says concerning him, and now he quotes Psalm 16, which we read this morning. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made to me the, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What Peter understands and wants his readers to understand is that David is the one who wrote this. Yet David writes, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, who is the Holy One that David is writing about? Peter goes on to say, brothers, I say to you with confidence, a little sarcasm there, about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us here to this day. David is dead. So who is he writing about? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw him. David is writing about Christ a thousand years earlier. Christ had to rise in fulfillment of prophecy. But more than that, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following, death is the result of sin. Jesus was sinless. Jesus had never committed any sin against God. He had never violated even one of the Ten Commandments. And his resurrection is proof of that. Because if death is the result of sin, then Jesus could not stay dead. Death could not hold him. Death could not keep him in the grave. And that's why we say the resurrection is the most significant event in all of redemptive history. Because had Jesus stayed dead then it would be proof that he was a sinner and he was no better than the rest of us. He was simply another individual in a long line of religious teachers who tried to start another religion. Jesus had to rise. We then read in Luke 24 verses 8 and following. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. How rude. But in the world of the first century 
Jewish male mind, it made sense that they did not believe them because women were viewed as untrustworthy in the first century world. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, once wrote, quote, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the lividity and temerity of their sex, close quote. They're just so fickle. You can't believe what they say. They're unbalanced. Philo, the first century uh, Greek philosopher, said women are irrational and should not be trusted. That was the view in the first century world. Women were not allowed to be called as witnesses in a, in, a, in a trial, in a courtroom. You couldn't call them to present any kind of evidence because whatever they said just simply couldn't be trusted. This, again, supports the historicity of the resurrection. Because if you were going to make something up in the first century world, if you were the disciples of Jesus and you wanted to make up this story and convince the world, particularly the Jewish world, that Jesus rose from the dead, you would have the first witnesses be men. That would make sense. And not just any men, you would have them be some upstanding men in the community that people would be believed. But this is the truth. Luke records what actually happened. All four Gospels record what actually happened. The first people to witness the empty tomb and to see Christ is women. Again, it's the paradox of God. God always rejoices in using the weakest among us to do his greatest work. That's what he does with the disciples. He chooses 12 ordinary men, some of them less than ordinary, fishermen, a tax collector. Really, of all people, a tax collector? And with these 12 ordinary men, he turns the world upside down. It always sends the message, God doesn't need our help. God chooses to use us for his glory. But the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses simply supports the historicity, the historical accuracy of the resurrection of Christ. Peter, of course, has such a hard time believing it, verse 12. He runs to the tomb himself. I got to go see for myself. I can't believe these crazy women. I got to go look. So he runs, and he goes in, he sees that the tomb is empty, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Where did he go? What just happened? In the end, salvation could not have been achieved by any other means. Jesus had to be delivered into the sins, into the hands of sinful men. He had to be delivered. It had to be sinful people who handed him over as the sacrifice, the sins of humanity. He had to be crucified. And he had to rise on the third day because the grave could not keep him. All of that is what gives us the assurance of our salvation and of our deliverance. Amen.
Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing, amazing grace for sending your Son into the world to do for us what we could never do. And Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, particularly in light of this past week if we, as we have reflected on your triumphal entry on your last supper, on your betrayal and crucifixion. We are so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come to earth, to stand in our place, to take the punishment, the beating that we so deserve. And we thank you for raising yourself from the dead for our justification and for our assurance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's Supper...